You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back for Film Friday. Woohoo! Finally. Yay! It's been a while. It's been a, it's been a hot sec. Beetlejuice uh, was our last Film Friday. That's kind of crazy. It feels like a really long time ago, but time just goes by so quickly in the podcasting world. We'll be like, oh yeah, we'll get, we're, we're going to sit down and do another Film Friday, and we look at it, and it's like, it's been almost a month. Whoopsies. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, welcome back, everybody. We're, uh, we're stoked to have you back here talking about some movies and stuff, and today we're getting into one that I've wanted to cover on the show for quite a long time, just because it's got all kinds of different elements that we cover on the show, and that is uh, 1954 classic 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, mm-hmm. which was directed personally by Walt Disney. Crazy. Uh, which is kind of interesting. It was the first movie shot in, I believe it's called Cinemascope. Oh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and obviously it's color and, and all that jazz in 1954. It's pretty, pretty spectacular for it is, the era in it terms is. of the production value. It was really well done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, basically um, go watch the movie if you guys haven't. Um, I'm sure lots of you have seen this. Obviously, it's been out for a long time. Uh, Kirk <laughs> Douglas, like just a classic, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, the story picks up essentially based off of, of course, the, the famous Jules Verne novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, mm-hmm. that was published in 1870. And the story picks up just a couple of years before that. So 1868, which is just like this, you know, it's such a, it's a, Interesting era, let's just say that, in terms of like development and the world changing and things like that. And exactly. They start the story off by saying, and I love this, being like, it, it was a dark time for shipping vessels, <laughs> which is just such an ominous thing, right? They were very much so, well, in the open seas especially, they're very vulnerable, right? Like they're, yeah. and just to go back to the, yeah, the time and place, the era that we're talking about, this was like, this was the era of the great unknown, right? Pushing the boundaries, mm-hmm. um, discovering those, the dark corners of our world. And a lot of scientists, a lot of um, different extraordinary people in society at this time were making these claims and some of them were following through with them. And totally. so this is kind of the plot hinger here. Very much mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So basically, yeah, the, the, the hinge is, yeah, this idea of a creature. Right. And that these shipping vessels are not safe in the waters that they're traveling in. So the very opening scene, before we even know what we're dealing with, like we get the monster right away. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of funny because it's like us watching. It's very obviously like a motor powered vehicle of some kind. (laughs) It almost looks like a crocodile. It kind of reminds me of something that like Batman would use. Yeah, it it's does. Like an underwater Batmobile. It totally <laughs> looks like that. It's the it's it's very much like um you know obviously it doesn't move in like a serpentine fashion. It doesn't have multiple appendages like a like a giant squid would have. But yeah, it's like this crazy weird crocodile looking thing that's like <clears throat> growing 
growing, glowing green mm-hmm. and obviously freaking people out on the ship. So basically we're intro to this monster right off the bat, which I like. It does, there's no, it gets right into it in this movie, which yeah, is does. really fun, right? And then right after that, we're given this sort of a, what I <laughs> jotted down in the notes here as a ye old Western looking facade. <laughs> Because it's 1868 and now we've come to the shoreline and it's basically like the the life of Brian, like guys up on pedestals, like preaching about the monster, mm-hmm. which I love. It's the so The soapbox, right? The soapbox, exactly. And of course, there's this big crowd of people listening to this, listening to this dude saying, you know, come aboard the ship, like we'll pay you double. We're going to go catch the monster. And then the guy on the other side's like, you're never going to get back in time to collect your money. Like listen mm-hmm. to this guy. And of course they have this... Um, the the stereotypical like crazy old man sailor with like his crutch his crutch and cane <laughs> yeah. and he's all grizzled and he's like it was the monster all right like it's just <laughs> like so stereotypical right exactly um but this is of course where we're introduced to to ned mm-hmm. um who's played by kirk douglas uh ned land mm-hmm. which i feel like is that a is that an intended pun because this movie is twenty thousand leagues under the sea i think that definitely is something that figures into his character, definitely. Yeah, right. it, is, it is like, yeah, a pun, a sign, almost like a sign or not a sign, like, you know, like almost like a foreshadowing kind of thing. Right. And Ned, he's so funny. He's so antagonistic right from the get go. Hey, and he continues that trend throughout. Yeah. So he, he break a fight breaks out because of him with all these people uh, listening to this guy preach about the monster. And he's just like, I'm not buying any of this because he's a harpooner, of course spends his life on the sea he's got the two broads under his arms and he's just the you know it's it's a pretty funny little scene but yeah fight breaks out he gets whacked over the head and then immediately just like holy moly that was a big whack on the head too (laughs) with a pickaxe i think it was it was something like that it was metal and he just gets clobbered i thought he was dead it's very much a disney-like scene right where very much so you're not dead (laughs) oh yeah a lot of these scenes actually like the action sequences and stuff like very much like you said it when we were watching the film last night it's almost like indiana jones as like almost spielbergian very disney you know it's got all of that going on for sure no it does yeah no it definitely does we'll Mm -hmm. get into a little bit more of that as well but basically after this i mean we're divided the 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 people are divided like is there a creature is there isn't so of course this professor shows up and when i first watched this i was under the impression that he showed up specifically to go looking for the monster but it wasn't quite like that he showed up he was doing research so this was a french professor uh played by peter lore or sorry, uh, sorry. His assistant was played by Peter Roy, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Lore, who is also the character of Joel Cairo in my one of my uh, all time mm-hmm. favorite movies, The Maltese Falcon. I think it might be just Peter Lore, but it could be Peter Lore. Okay, yeah. um, who played the professor? We'll have to pull that up. Anyway, yeah. the professor and his assistant uh, they show up. He's a he's a a researcher from which was it? The Museum of French Ooh French Natural. Anyway, he's a naturalist, right? He, yeah, something like that. But he immediately just gets bombarded by the press and they run this fantastical story, right? Which Mm -hmm. is, I guess, to be expected. I guess so. And then he's not even that mad about it, to be honest. It's more his assistant that's like, oh, this is rubbish and blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of, he looks at the illustration a little bit more closely. He's like, well, you know, this is actually, this could be quite accurate for size. And he's just like, kind of plays into it a little bit. Because one of the reporters jotted down a little, a little drawing of the creature. Yeah. And then they all jokingly, after the professor exits the scene, they're like, oh, let's just draw the wings on it now. Ha 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 ha. And then they print the story as if, yeah, it is, it is a fantastical story. And to some degree, perhaps diminishes the professor's reputation because of because of the fantastical element of it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that kind of sets the scene, right? So now he's kind of under this 
pretense that there is this monster potentially out there. Right. And now he's approached by none other than the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah. Representative shows up at his door and they immediately agree. Like there's no even back and forth or anything. Like he's very much just, he's a, he's an adventure seeker, I mm-hmm. guess the professor, right? And they really want to get to Saigon. So that's where the only way that they can really get, not the only way, but a convenient way for them to get there and perhaps accomplish their other sort of like, you know, secondary ambition of sure. perhaps uncovering this great sea monster. Right. So they can tie them both in a pretty little bow. And so they agree to this mission essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On Which, a Navy vessel. Which, yeah, exactly that. So now they're on a three to four month voyage where eventually they will be dropped off in Saigon is kind of the premise of this, but gives them lots of time to go looking for this creature. Yeah. But they don't really see much and time does pass, right? Like he says, the first month, this la la la, like we saw lots of things, lots of dolphins, lots of like, you know, sea life, but nothing, nothing to sort of um, confirm the claims that there is this giant creature out there. Yeah. So then the captain of their vessel decides that there is nothing to be found. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of interesting, right? Because we were still really early in the movie. It's about 13 minutes in. And he decides that the mission is over. And then we get the first sort of, act not action, but we get the first sort of like inkling that this is, could be true. Right. So basically like, yeah, like leading up to this, we're, like you said, we're only 13 minutes into the film, which is awesome because it gets right into it. It's like a two, almost a two hour long movie, but mm-hmm. there's no 40 minutes of buildup. Which I hate. And in these old movies, that is the case a lot of the time. Where it you're is, like, yeah. get into the story, get into the story, get into the story. And this very brief, um, you know, pre, like before they run into the creature, beautiful wide angle shots. They've got this sort of like funny thing where all the sailors are like piled over together and like, you know, to get into like one frame of the shot. And they're all like smushed together, like look at peering over the edge of the ship. Mm-hmm. And it's like very obviously like a movie set. Yeah, very um, much. But in like a way that's nostalgic and you almost like it. It's almost like you're watching a play. Yeah, very much. It has that theatrical feel to it for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're 13 minutes in. Everything's, you know, fa- fairly chill. But then all of a sudden, of course, there's a ship off the starboard bow. And this is such a great transition scene because it comes right after the the classic song from Kirk Douglas, A Whale of a Tale, that <laughs> is just stuck in my head like forever. Every time I watch this movie, it's like two months of that song stuck in my head. I woke up with it in my head this morning. <laughs> yeah, you literally, I, I woke up to you saying it, Oh, Whale of a Tale. I'm like, that's what I woke up to this morning. So he's singing the song to, for the crew. And then I love that scene transition. So it goes from that, this like carefree, uh, you know, sailor lifestyle all of a sudden to being like, very drastic change of mood, right? Which is awesome. They mm-hmm. they basically pull up to a ship that they see it at a distance and it gets it explodes. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what the hell happened? Yeah, not a chance for anyone on board. Not a chance for anyone on board. And uh, yeah, there's no survivors. And then they basically see this glowing green hue again from the very first scene. Mm-hmm. It's like this unnatural reptilian-like appearance to it. Yep. And it's coming right for them. Clearly, once again, like a motorized engine, a prop engine or something, but they wouldn't understand this at the time, I suppose, being on what was like their ship was like a uh, part steam, part sail. Yeah. (laughs) They've just got, yeah, they've got pure good old fashioned fossil fuel technology slash wind power. Yeah. This thing is clearly, it reminds me of a USO, right? Like an, um, I don't know if I'd submerged object that we kind of talk about when we're talking about, um, 
UFO uh, that lore and things like that. actually comes into this a little bit in my mind, like when we talk about the it technology. It kind of does. Because that is strange. But basically, yeah, the, the fate of the original ship uh, ends up being almost the fate of their ship. doesn't quite mm-hmm. explode, but they are attacked. Yeah. And of course, the professor, his assistant, who isn't thrown over, but the assistant like jumps in after it's, I mm-hmm. love it, professor, professor. And he like jumps <laughs> in as if, what are you going to do, man? What are you really, what, how, what are you going to do? But anyway, they're in the water. Ned, of course, was thrown overboard as well, but we don't know, we don't know where he is at this time. Right. And then they're sort of left adrift. And it's this really cool scene where it's just like really foggy, you know. Really ephemeral. It's like they're kind of entering a different world. Exactly. Exactly. It's, and, yeah. And of course, they, they sort of are, are, you know, damned, at least in their minds. But they float mm-hmm. over towards this, what is like this tiny little metal island. This very bizarre metal object sticking out of the sea. And I guess, yeah, this is sort of like. This is sort of their their savior in a way. Kind of, yeah. I really like the sequence where they do go in. They're just like these random like intrepidors that just go and just, you know, they're, they are hollering trying to find if anyone is on board. And it's really cool, right? Because they end up getting a little bit separated, right? Ned and his, or sorry, not Ned. Ned's not even on board at this point. He's not still yet. adrift. Yes. But it's the professor and his assistant. And then the professor ends up witnessing something. He goes way into the belly of the ship or the island or whatever they think it is. And then he witnesses what appears to be a underwater procession, a funeral procession. Yeah. Yeah, which is bizarre. So now they've discovered who these people are. They are human. They're not... <laughs> It's not a monster. It's not a monster. Well, maybe they are. They're monstrous humans. Who knows? But it's really cool, right? Because then they get this sequence, right, where they're essentially confronted by... There's Ned, too. So they have this big confrontation on board. It's basically, you know, it's not pretty by any means. It's not very diplomatic. And then the captain ends up... (laughs) <laughs> throwing them to the wolves essentially he's very like ruthless he says well you came from the sea you can go back to the sea and he yeah. basically he doesn't even strap them onto the ship itself he just makes them go outside and then he submerges the ship right. and just takes off which is kind of brutal right and he's watching him the whole time it kind of reminded me of that uh what was it not tales from the crypt it was that creep show we were watching creep the show. Other night yeah with. totally with leslie nielsen <laughs> leslie nielsen yeah so anyways he's he's pretty ruthless a bit unhinged i would say at this point because he kind of has this moment where he's like okay now i've had enough bring them back in as if he's suddenly changed his mind and they're they become kind of his obliging guests this weird compromise as he so calls it where there are no guests aboard the nautilus as he calls it that's a good line i love that line there are no guests there are only prisoners essentially but they're kind of neither they're floating in this ambiguous territory that's very uncertain at this point. Mm-hmm. And Ned, the sailor, does everything in his power just to kind of antagonize it, right? Yeah. He's, he's very uncompromising. He's the only one that really holds on to all of his morales and isn't afraid to just say what he's thinking. True. You know, like when they when they end up taking, later on in the ship, they end up taking another boat down very ruthlessly. And he's choked about he it. He is so choked. I can't remember the exact line. He says, I feel like the knife that just got stabbed into the back of right. someone or something. Or I don't know. Because they were know. sailors just like him is the line he says. Yeah, exactly. Just to go back to the first, to when they first enter the ship, I there was this sort of this interesting line that comes from um, the professor's assistant where he makes that comment right away as they enter where he's like, it's not oil and gas. Right. And I just found that to be really interesting because it's like, this is 18 1968, obviously they're educated individuals, but the, immediately walking in, they could tell from the lack of noise and like the lack of any sort of equipment, I guess that would like represent mm-hmm. the industrial revolution. W- nothing like that on board. Absent. Yeah. Very interesting, right? Like what would you be thinking? 
there's no such thing as nuclear power or anything at this, at this point, point in time. Exactly. The mystery only deepens. And the fact that we do have a professor in this trio, of course, he's going to be the curious one, right? So he immediately has this new sort of like mission to uncover the secrets of the Nautilus and to discover the secrets that Captain Nemo holds. Because this guy mm-hmm. is a very interesting character, very um, opaque, I would say. You know yeah. what I mean? As yes. far as like... Yeah. He's, he's, he's not willing to reveal his intentions, even though he says that he has intentions for the professor and his companions. That's an ominous. Right? <laughs> I know. I'd be like, it? what do you have planned for us? We're aboard a submarine with you that never seems to go to land, except for a few random islands that they pop up onto. There's something about being on a submarine, too. <clears throat> like, that is one of my greatest fears, honestly. Oh, yeah. Like, being tra- like there's one thing to... like. It's equivalent to me of obviously like being trapped in space. Like if you escape the sub, you're screwed. You can't do anything, right? It's not the Mm -hmm. same as like being trapped in a castle or trapped in a whatever or like even buried in a hole or something. You know what I mean? Like it's There's no escape really. And I had, yeah, exactly. I kind of had that panic set in. There's a scene later on where they end up, um, they they get kind of like stranded on a reef and there is damage to the hull and there are compartments of the ship that do flood. Right. But somehow they do manage to contain it. But it's always these things, right, where it's like, it almost reminds me of the Titanic where Kirk Douglas's character, Ned, he's just constantly trying to get from one level to the next because he's always the prisoner, essentially. He gets, he he kind of tests his fate too many times with the captain and gets thrown into the hall or whatever and, yeah. and locked away. And so he he just, he has such... He embodies everything about the sort of like classic American hero trope that's just like wing bang booming it, gonna get out no matter what. <laughs> Got a will to survive. Did you and really that's... just do the Sarah Palin line? <laughs> wing bang boom. <laughs> We're gonna wang bang bam. That's exactly right. what he does though. He's throwing punches the entire time. You know, the classic two punch kind of move and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but never ends up killing anyone, which again, right? Kind of like disnifies everything. Yeah, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, he's the good guy. He doesn't want to be, he's not a murderer. He's not a, he's a thief though. He is. He's not afraid to steal. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's he, more of like a sailor kind of thing. And he justifies character. it as saying like, this, these are stolen goods. Like you True. can't, you can't steal stolen goods. <laughs> you can only borrow them or use them for your mm-hmm. own means. Yeah. Hmm. Let's get into the captain though. Cause he becomes one of these like, I don't even know. Like, there's a lot of mystery surrounding him. Like, how did he get all this technology that he has on board? He's got a small crew of, like, maybe, like, 18. Mm Kind of looks like something like About 20, maybe, Maybe. people. But basically, yeah, like, we don't know his story. We kind of slowly get it as as they travel along. I think it's at 10,000 leagues, they say, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they they exit and the professor's finally taken ashore. And uh, it's funny because earlier they're like, they thought they were going ashore for a hunting expedition, right? But of course it's underwater, everything's underwater. And there's that funny scene where they're all eating the meal, their first meal on board mm-hmm. the uh, the Nautilus. And they're like, this is very delicious. This is lovely. And then he starts oh, describing what it is. <laughs> and it's all from the sea, which is of course like to us, you know, we eat a lot of sushi and like seafood and stuff. So it's like, it's pretty, innovative, pretty appetizing to us. And of course, Kirk Douglas, you know, Ned's like yeah. nothing's edible in their ship because he had like pureed octopus or something. Which it is, was pureed unborn octopus, right. <laughs> which is I mean, kind of gross, but it doesn't sound super, but the rest it of it though, like that, it doesn't sound super appetizing. They had like fried sea cucumber or something like that. It sounded pretty decent. It did. Filet of, of sea snake. If it tastes good, eat it. Indeed. But yeah, no, he's, a, he's a strange bird, obviously. Right. And, like, if you were on, if you were in the position of any of these three <clears throat> protagonist characters we're dealing with here, like, you'd think you're done for. You're done. Like, there's no getting off this. This guy's insane. And Ned says that right off the bat. He's like, 
you know, Nemo's cracked. That's that's his line. Yeah. Right? And he's been at sea. He he would have seen it. I mean, no, you know, not seeing land for a really long time or like not being having contact with normal people, not that these mm-hmm. crazy robot sailors that you've got just obeying your every command. Mm-hmm. But he's he's a damaged man that we discover, right? So yeah. he, when they take him ashore to the island, that was kind of a weird scene though. So they go ashore and there's a slave camp mm-hmm. on this one sort of random island in the South Pacific. Yeah. And he claims that he was a former slave. Yeah, that part is strange to me. Right. Like they don't really explain that in a lot of detail. He kind of just says that as they're watching these slaves, right, of this colony on this island are essentially loading up a ship um, with a cargo of death. So he says. Yes. And then, yeah, exactly. Nemo tells the professor he was once one of those men and it's, quote, spurned everlasting into his memory. Yes. So my question then is, how do you become a slave worker transformed into this evil maniacal genius that has all of this unearthly technology i know like he claims to have escaped with a bunch of people and these are now mm-hmm. his crew mm-hmm. and that they went to what was the island Vol- volcania volcania where they developed all this technology like mm-hmm. this is where i mean we'll come into it at the end but they don't touch on this it's 1954 it's a disney movie there's no ufos in this movie no but presumably I mean, I immediately just thought of like element 115 or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like where it's like he's – their power in the vessel, there's no there's no noise, like there's no emissions really. He no. takes the professor into this room where it's like this panoramic like really like bright lights mm-hmm. and they lower down that weird helmet thing on him so that he can look into the actual like fuel. Very much like right, a coal, yeah. like a coal uh, furnace, but – it's just this white blinding light that you can't look at without this special helmet. Kind of reminds me of nuclear atomic exactly. technology or something. But uh, but obviously for like a reactor on that yeah. on there to exist, like at the, it would be way too big and like just so like what is power in this alien technology, man? Alien technology. This is Bob Lazar well, stuff, man. It kind of is, and like the professor, he just loosely alludes to the idea that Nemo has discovered the secrets of the universe. He's harnessed them. So that to me immediately brought up like Nikola Tesla. (laughs) You know what? And it actually kind of makes sense if you think about it that way. So he's harnessed the secrets of the universe. This guy's entire existence was traveling the ocean floor, collecting secrets and treasures of the world. So he could stash them in this island of of Volcania and keep them from humanity Mm -hmm. because he hated humanity, society, civilization, basically. Mm-hmm. All for it's all just a personal vendetta, right? Because then later on, again in the movie, he does conf- or confide, sorry, in the professor and say that his wife and young son had been tortured and killed because he had escaped, and right. and so then that's kind of like his everlasting vendetta against all of humanity and he's basically written off everyone there's the one scene that he has with the professor where the professor confronts him on all of this and he he kind of like turns it around on the professor and says well you can't make it that simple like you you know like as far as like a binary of good and evil but it's like dude you set that up yeah you already did that earlier you wow. set it up you simplified entire civilization of humanity is evil yes so because of one event exactly so just I, wait pal 1940s haven't hit yet Yeah. So it really does kind of contribute to the idea that he is full on delusional. He has lost his marbles. Yeah. And there's that one scene right before kind of 
kind of the climax, not quite the climax. It's just when they actually end up destroying the slave ship that they had earlier observed. Yeah. And they're getting ready for the attack. And he's, there's like that two minute organ scene where he's playing that Bach fugue and he's just like losing <laughs> it. You see his eyes are just going crazy and he's, he's sweating profusely and he's just preparing himself. Hey, like he's, he's going, he, he's already going down with the ship seemingly, even though they aren't, they, they aren't the ship does take on damage after that attack but it isn't fatal damage yeah it isn't until the climax when they actually reach volcania that nemo discovers that essentially his whole world has been not destroyed but it's been discovered so now he must go into like final action phase (laughs) pretty much yeah but it you know what though like just to I'm trying to like, yeah, like Nemo's a weird guy, hates all civilization. There is sort of that weird scene though at one point where they let Ned and uh, the assistant go to shore, right? And, you know, stay on the beach because there's there's headhunters in the jungle. Ned doesn't believe it. And he's like, this is my chance to escape. That was kind of a scene where it was like, Nemo, Captain Nemo was clearly like, didn't associate the the people on this island with his hatred of civilization, right? right because yeah. he makes that comment about how like you invaded their space. Now they're more than welcome to invade ours. And they're like boat over to the, uh, to the submarine and start to like poke around. Also, I will make the point of saying like, that is obviously an extremely racist scene. It is 1954 yep. and Walt Disney was a racist, mm-hmm. but, but <laughs> just to, just to, yeah, just just to say that, just to clear that up. Just to say that, <laughs> um, yeah. But um, but yeah, no, it does show that that Captain Nemo, it really was just like Western civilization, right? That he was exactly that they are not worthy of any of these accomplishments or any of this technology. So then, when they end up reaching Volcania and they discover that there are there's a massive fleet of military boats surrounding the entire atoll it's just basically a um, an atoll is a a extinct volcano that has like a big crater in the middle so there's water in the middle of it Mm -hmm. so then that's when Captain Nemo decides it's go time they gotta destroy the island no one can get these secrets (laughs) I love this part too because they end up diving below using their submersive technologies and they end up coming and resurfacing right in the middle in the, the lagoon of the atoll right which was really cool very very cool and this is where nemo decides to get off and he's setting the charges meanwhile ned's trying to wave a shirt saying we're the ones that called you we we sent the bottles because he ends up you know he's got his funny little escape plan where he ends up sending messages in a bottle very yep. robinson crusoe style very much and they so. make the joke but it ends up helping in yeah, the end yeah. or hurting. Um, I don't even know. Cause that's the question for me is like, say hypothetically they reached Volcania and there were no military vessels. Mm-hmm. They were just going there for repairs for the Nautilus. So my question is what was Nemo's next move after that? Well, we all, I mean, I guess we get it at the end where we realize his ultimate intentions are to die underwater. Like basically just to like, once you've, collected all the treasures that you're going to keep from humanity, we can just sort of sink to a watery grave. And maybe, I don't really know mm. if that, he wasn't quite at that point yet though. Like I it was only because of the presence of the ships that he decided to do that and because he was injured. I think the injury was the final sort of, I don't think he was set to destroy the Nautilus itself in that exact moment as no, well. No, not at that exact moment. I think that was the because, end game eventually. Exactly, because that's why they exited the atoll. If he wanted to destroy everything, he would have just stayed at the island. But then it's almost like he walked... Very true. I, and we made that point too. It's like, if you really wanted to like end it this way, are you all just going to go into your quarters and like dive dehydration like underwater mm-hmm. in your thing? Or why wouldn't you just stay on the island and blow up in yeah. epic proportion? Exactly. Like Montrose style from Red Green. Mm-hmm. But um, he... I feel like his injury, 
I made the point too. It's like, hey, how come you're not trying to stay alive here, pal? You like, got all you this don't, technology. Don't look like you're that down for the count. Like you're not doing so hot, but you're not. He's got a gut shot. Yeah, but you're not like bleeding profusely. Like you can survive. Come on. But it's almost like he wanted to give up. He's I like, think I'm so. Done. Yeah, I'm over this. I think he and did. Yeah. The words from the professor being like, "You are a broken man. Like you're you're only holding on to these things. You don't want to." you know, feel sentimental about Ned saving you. We can go to that scene too, because there's the awesome Kraken scene uh, where Ned saves him. And then he's like, oh, I, you know, I would have regretted saving him if it was in the other situation, except the only difference is I wouldn't have tried. And the professor's like, really though? You're only, you're reinforcing these beliefs to justify your entire existence on the Nautilus, right? And it's so obvious. And like, you can see it in his eyes when the professor says that, that Mm -hmm. he knows he's right. Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess in that moment, you know that he's not entirely insane. He's he he's 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 repressed a lot of things. Oh, and he yeah. hasn't completely lost his mind, just partly. Just partly. Let's talk about the Kraken scene. Oh, the Kraken! Because this is like because we're dealing with these are the elements that match up with Into the Portal in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Like history going back to the 1860s and like exploration and the idea of sea monsters, weird paranormal technology that is unexplainable that is powering Nemo's vessel and. His, his exploration and of course the monster itself which ends up existing there's mm-hmm. Nemo as the monster and then there is indeed the Kraken the Kraken the real giant squid exactly and it comes for them and it it's ruthless and it's kind of funny too the sizing like when you look at the scene right the Kraken is way smaller I'm thinking to myself like I don't think a squid would attack a vessel that big they needed to make it a little bit bigger in my opinion yeah but you know when they actually end up surfacing to attack it it looks a lot larger so true yeah also we did learn from uh the the monster quest boneless horror <laughs> episode that small squids attack big stuff like they're, they're pretty cocky animals like they'll go for i guess so they them. are pretty aggressive yeah. and this would you call this a humboldt squid no not necessarily but no. i mean it is a cephalopod it is and, it's uh, a giant cephalopod of some sort yes squidward no. so of course it's good word but yeah no attacks the vessel Nemo gets cocky, right? He goes out there with a the harpoon, mm-hmm. gets it once, but then just gets scooped up by this thing. And then Ned ends up saving him. He dives in underwater with a knife in his mouth, classic sailor style. Yep. Chops off the arm, saves him, but it doesn't It doesn't save Ned because he's still a prisoner on the Nautilus. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of the, the th- I, we have alluded to this already, but the theme of this with Ned is like he's constantly escaping <laughs> and he's just ruthless and he is so brilliant. So yeah, this is kind of where we get into, well... The scene with the Kraken occurs before the scene where they enter Volcania, of right? Course. Because yes. the ship is heavily damaged at this point. They don't even have their, because they have that outer like electrical field as some sort of like protectant, but that actually right. dies in the middle of the Kraken attack. Yes. So that's down. I think they have some other mechanical issues they needed to fix as well. So after the Kraken attack occurs, and of course, yeah, like <laughs> Captain Nemo is just kind of like stewing in his cabin over the fact that Ned saved him. And then meanwhile, Ned and <laughs> the seal Esmeralda are just getting stinking drunk in his cabin, singing songs and having a gay old time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. it's great. Up until the point where they realize, yeah, Volcania has been compromised. Yes. And Ned is ecstatic, right, that his plan actually worked with the bottles. Yet, again, they're so close to being saved or whatever, but so far away as well. Because these don't seem to be very friendly troops that are uh, invading the island. No. No. No, they don't. And we don't know who they are. Yeah, they're never really... American. I don't even know. They they kind of didn't look American, I like know. the actors, but... that's the, Well, I know, right? But it's like he sent the... The messages he wrote in the bottles were in English. They're yeah. in the South Pacific. That's, you know, Hawaii territory. 
you know, Phil- American controlled Philippines, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like it could have been American ships. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah. Where are you at here? Well, I'm coming down to like kind of like the final sequence. So Nemo, he ends up steering the the Nautilus to safety out of the atoll. They witness the massive explosion. It's like an atomic bomb, right? Like that, again, kind of affirms to me that this could be some sort of nuclear technology, something to do with splitting the atom. That this <laughs> island is like an entire city. Let's just reiterate that. Oh, I know. That's, that's the other crazy thing. It's like this massive, it looks like the villain's lair in like a James Bond movie, right? We just, we share brainwaves. I'm literally like, I'm saying that in my head, like before you said, no, it totally is, right? It reminds me of like Dr. No or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Totally. totally. Yeah. Totally, man. Oh, totally. Totally, man. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where I'm coming down to because we get this final sort of, uh, this decision on the part of Nemo, the ship, he gives the orders to kind of let it sink to its final resting place. Meanwhile, obviously Ned has huge beef with that. He's like, ah, no, 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 no. They end up trying to escort him back into his cabin so he can die in peace alone. (laughs) Hmm. But ends up overtaking not one, not two, but three sailors (laughs) and getting out of the cabin. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And ends up saving, obviously, the professor and his assistant. The one scene, though, because he ends up getting into it quite a bit with the first mate. Yes. And that's kind of another sort of instance where you see Ned's um, heroic qualities, where he is... He's the type of guy that's going to subdue his, his, you know, his opponent. Yeah. He's not going to be ruthless and, and kill him, though. Right. And even though the first mate clearly was going to kill him, he was going to drown him, right? Yes. And Ned ends up knocking him out, placing him, like, you know, upright in the in the middle of the hall or whatever. So he doesn't drown. Exactly. Even though he does go down with the ship. Everyone goes down with the ship. It's right. only the three, or the four, I should say, because Esmeralda ends up hopping into the little, <laughs> little dinghy. <laughs> right. And then they end up just dr- drift. That's all we get, hey? Yeah. We get the final scene where the Nautilus, the, the bow is just... Just, just over the tip and then it sinks into the sea mm-hmm. with all of its secrets. And that was a funny perspective thing too, because when they, they show the sinking of the Nautilus, it was very clearly like smaller. Like the tip was like, obviously like a model, you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. they, but again, it's the 1950s, right? Exactly. And, and like the Kraken scene where the tentacles are coming into the ship and stuff was actually really awesome. It was. Like it was, it reminded me a lot of like 70s, 80s movies, like way mm-hmm. later, like literally 30 years later. Yeah. The production quality uh, was amazing. Similar, similar quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally. Yeah. It was, it was, it, it was great coming in through the door, trying to grab onto the professor and stuff like that. <laughs> Slapping him around. I think that was probably my favorite scene. The Kraken scene. Just because it's, you know, yeah. c- c- coming in through the vessel. And I love also, that scene too. Um, they're all out there struggling on the side of the ship during a mm-hmm. storm. Of course, there's always a Kraken attack during a storm. It's yep. never on a sunny <laughs> Sunday afternoon. No. Nope. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> that was a fun scene. I really, we both really enjoyed that scene in the jungle, right? When <laughs> when Ned ends up realizing oh, yeah. that they are headhunters. Right. They are cannibals. And then he hears the drums start in yeah. the distance. And then it's like the classic reminds me of a combination of Ace Ventura and um, Indiana, Indiana Jones. Jones. Which is, of course, honestly, <laughs> like I'm thinking about it, it's like that is exactly where they got the idea for those scenes from. Obviously, uh, Ace Ventura is parodying various chase scenes out of the jungle in other movies, and I think Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, yeah, Spielberg was uh, it's another was sort watching of old uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues when he came up with that <laughs> idea. But yeah, super fun movie. Really, really enjoyed this one just because we like the older, the older films, the older ones that are well done. Because there's a lot out there that aren't well done, but right. there's there are classics, they're gems. Yeah. So I'm really glad we covered this one. And I think Walt Disney obviously had the uh, the the benefit of like a really, I mean, they I think they followed the novel pretty closely, right? And mm-hmm. 
I was I would say like well written script. I'm air quoting here, but it's like just a great book. It just is. a great story. Just yeah, an and, epic tale. And it just it just really latches onto this idea. Like I wish I could be. I wish I could not even just go back into this era and be a fly on the wall, but go back into this era, be a fly on the wall, and having forgotten a lot of the things I know now because it's like living. I, I just can't even imagine it. Like no no computer to Google something and look at a picture of a monster. Like no mm, yeah. no TV shows to like to watch about monsters. You're just going out in the ocean, not knowing what's mm-hmm. out there. The great unknown. You know, and like that first scene where they see the the funeral procession and like they're wearing the suits underwater, and it's just like the, to, obviously there was some diving going on back in the day, but crate it just it's very very cool. I wish mm-hmm. I could have been in that situation. No, maybe in another life. Maybe in another life. <laughs> we want to know what you guys have to have to say about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm-hmm. So hit us up. Uh, as always, subscribe to the show. Subscribe and rate the show. Five stars, five stars, five stars. Really helps. We mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Shout out to our producer, Jordan Yu, and all of our Patreon supporters. Yeah. And uh, we have a, a, a new one, uh, Jackie. Jackie! Jackie Ayers. Woo-hoo. Sweet. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on Patreon. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we want to know what you guys have to say. And if you don't want to comment on social media, hit us up. Send us an email into mm-hmm. the portal mailbox at gmail.com. But you can always uh, comment on our Facebook page. Come follow us on there, you guys. Join the forum and all that jazz. Yep. And as always, check out our network, straightupstrange.com, for a bunch of awesome, strange, paranormal, similar show stars. Exactly. So as always, uh, on Into the Portal, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll be back next week on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bizarre. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.